are listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Good morning and welcome to episode 59 of Footprints on Our Hearts. Today I have a very special interview with a mother and a daughter about their baby loss experience. And I've been wanting to interview a grandparent for a while on the podcast. And when I reached out to Rachel to see if she'd be interested, she also suggested that her daughter, Hannah, might come on as well to talk about their joint experience. And I'm really glad she suggested that because it makes for a great interview. So in the interview, we talk a lot about um, Hannah's pregnancy with her first child, Grace, who died after she went into premature labour at 21 weeks. And Hannah had a really traumatic experience, not just with you know, the experience of going into premature labour and losing Grace, but with how they were treated by, by the hospital. Um, and in fact, one of, one of the things they they weren't actually told at the time that Grace was born alive and Grace was whisked away and Rachel, who was there and who was sort of waiting outside the room, wasn't able to hold her then. And which really, which really struck a chord with me and I'm sure it will strike a chord with a lot of you when you listen to their account and experience of this. So we talk a lot about that. We talk about Hannah's experience of grief and Rachel's experience having to watch her daughter go through those real dark times and those dark weeks and months of grief following the loss of Grace. Um, We also talk quite a lot about Tommy's, the baby loss charity, as Hannah received some specialist support from them following Grace's death and also during her subsequent pregnancy with her son Jude. So we talk about that as well, her experience of pregnancy after loss and Jude's birth, which was not straightforward. So he was born very prematurely. He had some time in NICU and um, and that all impacted Hannah's grief. So if you've been through any of these, these kind of similar experiences, um, premature labour, pregnancy after loss, time during the NICU. I'm sure there are aspects of her story that you can relate to. And if you are a grandparent listening to this, then I hope that you can relate to some of Rachel's feelings and experiences. Today, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Rachel and Hannah. And Hannah's daughter, Grace, sadly died in 2018 after Hannah experienced premature labour. Rachel is Hannah's mother and therefore Grace's grandmother. Thank you both so much for coming onto the podcast to share your stories. Um, I'd like to start at the beginning. So Hannah, could you tell us how was your journey to getting pregnant with Grace? I mean, ridiculously easy uh it's always a bit embarrassing talking about that in front of your mum but uh <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go into the details <laughs> very very quick and very easy there was no there's no complications in terms of fertility or anything like that yeah so in terms of actually getting pregnant no problems at all it was just sort of once I became pregnant then the issues started to kind of unfold a little bit there yeah and Rachel how did you feel when Hannah told you she was pregnant 
because I had Hannah quite young myself, we kind of grew up together and she's probably more mature than I am. So I was a bit like, oh my gosh, you know, sort of, I'm not quite ready, but I was really excited and really happy, you know, about this prospect of there being a new baby in the family. And I think it was just on a, when they had announced they were having Grace, I think the, the everyone was kind of, ah, oh, you're going to be a granny, you know, because, because I think it's just my immaturity as such you know as, as as a parent but yeah we had you know sort of been really excited about the prospect of of having mm-hmm. a, a little girl in the family you know sort of mm-hmm. coming to join and I, I do have to say that you do look I feel bad calling your grandmother because you look far too young to be a grandmother <laughs> and I guess that must be I mean I think you know my my mum is considerably older than you and I think she found it when you know we had so she finds it really weird to be called like granny or something she's like yeah. oh I can't be called granny because that's how she thought of like her mum yeah. or you know her grandmother it's a really kind of weird it must be a really weird thing to get your head around yeah it is I think when I say I was really young when I had Hannah I was 18 when I had her um or 19 sorry and um and it was the same with with her Nana it was you know she was sort of in her early 40s and didn't want to be known as granny so we'd come up with the nickname of fossil was like old, an old oh. granny fossil and, um, and so that's now my nickname you know so instead of being granny or nana it's fossil so kind of oh, kept the tradition that. <laughs> that's brilliant oh that's really good yeah. <laughs> so Hannah could you tell us a bit about how your pregnancy went with Grace so I think problems started to show at around I'd say about six weeks I went for a early scan because I was worried I was, it was ectopic, basically. I was just having a few niggling feelings. Everything was fine. 12-week scan, everything grand. And then from about 14 weeks, I had like a really, really big bleed while I was at work at primary school. Yeah, like humong- humongous bleed. It was nothing that would, it wasn't normal, basically. Mm. So I went, they said, your, your cervix is shut. There's nothing going on. Go home. It's just one of those things just forget about it but things kept cropping up and I must have been at the early pregnancy unit every single week and every single week they told me no nothing's wrong nothing's wrong go home just relax just relax I'm just having all this you know you can't relax when it's when you're having those issues and I think that's probably one of the things I look back on with most anger I think because there clearly was an issue and I was persisting with that issue and yet nobody took me seriously. And I think that's probably quite a common theme you might find with people like me who say, well, I just know something's wrong. Well, that's not good enough. You know, there's nothing that's telling me that anything's wrong. But if they had just done a simple cervical scan, they would have seen it was shortening and they could have done something about it, you know, a 30 second scan and they just refused to do it. So, yeah, lots of things building up to the moment uh, that I was kind of, you know, just told to just crack on basically and it's hard like I think it's hard especially when it's your first baby you you have to kind of trust them don't you because you you know you can you can sense that something's wrong but you you don't know you trust the experts to you know know what they're doing and do their job properly yeah I mean I'm an anxious person as it is I think there was a part of me that was thinking okay so how much of this is actually in my head and how much of this actually is happening right now um and I doubted a lot of what I was going through and thought blimey they must be sick of me being here every week but actually I had a right to be there uh and you call them up and say this is what's happening well are you bleeding through three pads every 10 minutes no 
are you pushing? No. Well, we don't want to see you then. It's like, okay, but this is happening and this is happening. The reason that you have this whole unit here is to help me and you're refusing. So it's it's tough. It's tough to be in very early stages of pregnancy and feel like you're not getting the support you need. Yeah. And so at what point did they start listening to you? When I went to the hospital, I was 21 weeks and one day and I was four centimetres dilated. But previous to that, that night, about 10 o'clock, I'd said, look, I'm having some really odd pains, um, having a bit of a show, I suppose you could call it. Just something's not right here. I thought it was like a really extreme Braxton, Braxton Hicks, but it turned out actually I was in labour. Um, no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. No need to come in unless you, your mucus plug comes out, blah, blah, blah. So I persisted kind of two hours later. I was literally in full-blown in full blown labour. So I said to my husband, Joe, look, I'm just going to go to the hospital. I'll probably be back in a few hours. They'll probably tell me nothing's wrong. You know, you stay here. And he said, no, 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 I'll come with you. I'll come with you. And thank goodness that he did. Because 10 minutes later, when we arrive, we're really sorry. Your baby's going to die. You're four centimetres dilated. And it was too late at that point. Is that what they actually told you? Yeah, so so basically this this junior doctor came in and he examined me and then he looked really sheepish and left the room. And that's when I said to Joe, I sort of thought, okay, this is happening now. Something's gone wrong here. So another like more senior doctor came back and said, look, I'm really sorry. You're four centimetres dilated. It's very unlikely that your baby's going to survive. Uh, just as if it was casual conversation. And then two minutes later asked me, are you okay? And I was just burst into tears like, no, I'm not. You've just told me my baby's going to die. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. Sorry for, sorry for asking. It's just, it was really just like it was just the norm for them. But to me, my whole world had kind of fallen to pieces. And I'm sure mum remembers that conversation at sort of four in the morning. Yeah. And that, that was going to be my next question, actually, Rachel. So obviously, I guess you knew like some of the problems that Hannah had been having during this pregnancy. But, you know, I'm guessing it didn't cross your mind for a moment that, that something like this was going to happen. No, I think... There was also an incident where I think you'd slipped down the stairs and you'd gone in to be checked over. And I think it was just a case of just doing the tummy scan, but nothing else was kind of checked. You know, no internal scans were done and you were sent home. And I think that was at the week prior to you going into hospital. And from that point, it was kind of just in the forefront of your mind. This was always in the forefront of thinking, I hope everything's okay. I hope nothing is going to happen. And then when we were in bed, it was like four o'clock in the morning and got a phone call from Joe. And all I can remember hearing is my husband saying, oh, my darling, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I woke up thinking, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And he said, Hannah's gone into premature labour and she's over at Coventry Hospital. So that morning I sort of got dressed. I was going to go into work and I thought, no, I'm going to go to the hospital. And then so that was like an hour and a half away from me just sort of going back and forth and I think over the, the space of the four days that we were back and forth at the hospital there were numerous conversations and I think if I'm being totally blunt and totally honest here a lot of the senior management as such of the of the ward she was on kind of treated it more like she was a business rather than a patient and I think it was just the I know that they have to kind of withdraw back from any emotion but if we talk about something you know sort of things that happened sort of along along the, the four days it was just as if oh well you know it, it's just one of those things it happens very clinical yeah mm. yeah exactly and you know I've got beds that I need to be filling so you need to go home 
and this was a conversation that had happened the day after Grace had been born and Hannah at this point is very very poorly having to have blood transfusions and so forth and that's one of the things that really really sticks in my mind there's two cases where I thought I shouldn't be here I should be somewhere else was two was one the consultant the day after my uh, HB level was 70 it should have been 150 and he told me you need to go home now because I've got people that need your bed the day after I'd lost my child and the second one was I stood up for the first time after I'd had grace and I lost like a horrific amount of blood and one of the HGAs came in and said oh you'll be right just get on with it you're young enough and I thought what I can't believe that I was losing like a considerable amount of blood I mean mum will tell you I was was, even even if you hadn't been losing that blood you've just lost your daughter yeah it was horrific I mean we could sit here all day and talk about my care uh, and how bad it was but they were the two things that stuck in my mind was oh you're young enough like just get on with it you're fine little did she know I was great at this point I've been bleeding for four days straight I could barely stand up and it was just the whole I was an inconvenience to them. It was just absolutely horrific. And so, so yeah, because your, you know, your, your labour wasn't straightforward, was it, in, in terms of Grace's birth? So, so you went in, you're told you're four centimetres dilated, you're essentially told, oh, you're going to have to give birth to your baby now, or you are going to give birth to your baby. And I guess they didn't, and they didn't give you kind of any hope that she would survive that. But I'm guessing you didn't expect it to take that long. So what were there some complications in terms of in terms of how that went then? I don't really remember a whole lot, if I'm completely honest. I don't know if it's just because I was laying there that things slowed down. I don't I, I honestly don't have a clue as to why it lasted as long as it did. I think there was talk about you having the circlage, having the stitch when you yes. first went in and there was a lot of bleeding. They wafted it in front of my face. They wafted it and dangled it at me and said all this could be an option, but you're going to have to make it until Wednesday when the clinic with the professor runs. And sorry, it's Sunday at the moment. I don't think you're going to make it that far. So they kind of, like, they dangled it in front of me and said, oh, look, here's a carrot, but you can't actually have it. So, yeah, I have no idea why it lasted as long as it did, but it was horrific. And as much as I hate to say it, I would just wish it was over a lot sooner because it made me incredibly unwell and... The care I received over those four days was bad, very, very bad. Yeah, I think it was um, going back and forth to Coventry and, like say, seeing Hannah in such... She was in a private room and just seeing her decline over those four days, losing so much blood, being sort of on um, oxygen on that day that she actually had grace and just seeing her so grey. And it was, like I say, not actually taking that much notice perhaps perhaps that's the wrong word of sort of just how I could see how ill she was compared to sort of how clinically people would um, assess that Mm. how ill she was but yeah it was it was horrific and did you did you choose to see Grace after she was born and spend some time with her um so I don't specifically remember being asked if I wanted to see her I know for a fact that my husband didn't get asked if he wanted to see her. I think mum will probably be able to answer this better than me in terms of how quickly she was taking out of the room. But um, I did see her maybe three or four hours later. And then I was able to stay with her for 
about four days. They were, I was stayed in hospital to have transfusions and whatnot, and she was kept kind of like in a in a morgue, I suppose, sort of like on the on the ward. So I was able to see her whenever I wanted. But in terms of seeing her there and then, I don't remember it. I don't remember that being an option. And did you see her, Rachel? No, because what happened was, so we got the call on the Friday to say Hannah was going into labour. Over the course of those four days, travelling back and forth to Coventry, on the Monday that she was born, I'd arrived at the hospital and gone into the ward, into the room that Hannah was in, and she was completely grey, sort of lifeless, almost lifeless on the bed. And I started to shake her, and there was just no response. She was on gas and air, there was no response, and I was really shaking her ran out in a panic and I had um, my stepdaughter with us as well, ran out into the corridor, rang the bell and just said, "How? someone help, someone help. And they said, what's the matter? I said, how often are you checking on her? How often are you checking on her? And just in complete panic. And they rushed in to see Hannah, asked if I'd step out of the room and Louise and myself sort of stepped out and within seconds they'd sort of sat Hannah up and you just heard this tiny little cry and then the nurse ran out with this baby in her arms and covered her over with a blanket or or paper towel and I just remember saying is that her is that her please can I see her please can I be with her and the nurse was saying I'm sorry you can't be with her and sort of rushed off with her and another doctor sort of came in there were people sort of in and out in and out and I just constantly kept saying please can I just be with this babe please let me just be with her and um, and they wouldn't allow it and I, I can understand you know there might be reasons why that would be but for me you know this is my family and that's the one thing I can't move on from and it makes me really emotional thinking about it because I just remember seeing her the worst part other than that was that Hannah and Joe actually weren't told until two days later uh, by the bereavement midwife who came to visit that she was actually born awake and that she'd passed 15 minutes later so there was just a, a big shock then but they had been able to see Grace a few hours later and we'd sort of the family sort of waited around in the visitors room um until sort of Hannah and Joe sort of got to see Grace and they dressed her and she's perfect she, she was fully formed your know, hair just just this very tiny baby that just needed to grow and we'd spent sort of time with Hannah and Joe and just seeing the absolute devastating pain I can't even describe it of my baby grieving for hers it's it was just the worst thing ever do you know weirdly I'd actually forgotten that I didn't know it's all very foggy for me because it was I was ill at the time so thing things for me are a bit muddled and I actually remember now you said it that at the point she was born I had no idea that she died alone in a room that absolutely breaks my heart like I, I get quite emotional and just to think like that she got taken away and you could have been there and you could have held, I mean, obviously, Hannah, you were, you know, you were too sick and completely out of it, but, you know, you or Joe could have held her while she passed. I mean, they may, they may well could have said to me at the time, do you want to see her? I don't feel like I was in a position to answer that question, but Joe was, and he could, and he would have said, yes, please. Like mum said, it wasn't until the next day or the day after that, it happened to slip out in conversation with someone that I'd barely barely met before because she was born and died that you now need to have a funeral um, and you need to register a birth certificate and you need to register a death certificate. So suddenly I'd gone from sort of thinking I'd had a miscarriage to suddenly, no, this is a neonatal loss. You've now got to plan a funeral and you've got to 
deal with all the all the horrific things on the other side of that as well that they just didn't make me aware of and had I known she was born living that would have changed the whole game for me though you know I would have 100% would have been there and the fact that they said that mum couldn't be makes me very very angry oh I'm not surprised I'm so sorry that you know you all went through that terrible um and I I remember sort of so my daughter was stillborn but she was born later on so she was uh, sort of 26 weeks and we didn't even get told by the hospital then that you know that that clusters a stillbirth you know there's that kind of line in the sand between you know if they are if they are born dead whether it's clusters a miscarriage or a stillbirth and I remember going home and looking on the Tommy's website and realizing then that oh, this means we have to register it and we have to have a funeral. And and where do you even start with that? What what do you do? You know, no one thinks about having to have a funeral for their baby, do they? And I was just thrusted with a million different leaflets a day later. And I don't know if it was a similar experience for you, but okay, you need to sign this and you need to pick a date and you need to decide crematorium. Do you want there to be, you know, do you want us to find out why it happened? And it was just kind of like, well, hang on a second. I've only just found out that she actually lived, you know, kind of give me a second here. And um, as you say, um, you're not knowing about, because isn't it something to do with a certain time? So if a baby dies in the womb, but before 24 weeks, it doesn't count and you get nothing. You get no support. I think it does depend on the hospital because I think mm-hmm. I know I have spoken to a few people who've who've had babies sort of, I guess 20, 22 weeks. And I think often now hospitals will, they'll give you a, a certificate, you know, a certificate. It sounds, sounds like you could give you a bloody award, doesn't it? But, um, you know, some a recognition that, you know, yeah. you had a baby and this is what you called him or her and they will arrange a funeral and, and do that. Um, but I do think it, it does depend. In terms of support, because with Grace, luckily, I mean, I say luckily, I'd rather it didn't happen. But because she was born living and then died, I was able to get full maternity pay. So I was able to take that time away. But in terms of if, if say she was still born, I would have got no, I would have got none of that. I would have got yeah. zero help, which I think is just barbaric, really. So, yeah. And the fact that, like you say, that you had to go and research that for yourself just kind of says it all, really, that the just mm. the support is just completely lacking. And did you find out why you'd lost Grace? Were you able to get those answers? Yes. Yeah, so... There was a serious case review, wasn't there, afterwards? Yeah, so basically I... We kind of knew why. We knew that she... There was nothing wrong with her. There was no reason that, that this had happened because of her. We kind of knew that. It was me. Um, but I had to wait three months to find out from Professor Quemby. I don't know if you've heard of her before. She's works for Tommy's. And she just said, you've, you know, you've got an incompetent cervix and this is what it is. This is what happens. You've dilated too early and you've gone into labour um, too soon. So we declined kind of having the idea of sort of, I know it sounds horrific, but kind of your baby being cut up and finding out that didn't appeal to me whatsoever. And I thought, no, even if she did have some sort of abnormality, I just don't want it. But it, we kind of knew that it was it was me uh, that was the issue. And Hannah, what was your experience of grief like over those first few months? And was there anything that made it worse or that helped you to come to terms with that loss? I I think it hit me like a train. I think we had about, would you say, about, was it about three weeks? About three weeks between her passing away and her funeral, yeah. three, four weeks. And it was sort of like living in a dream 
I was sort of busy, I would say, in a way, busy thinking about what I needed to do in terms of, okay, I need to contact this person, this person, I need to visit her in the morgue, I need to go to the funeral home, all of these different things, I need to, you know, flowers, all that. I sort of was living in this dream world. And then the funeral happened and then it was kind of like, what now? I had nothing. I had, there was nothing I could more I could do for her. I couldn't plan her funeral. I couldn't plan flowers for her. I couldn't, you know, things like that, that although it was hard to do at the time, I was doing this for my baby. And then suddenly I didn't have that anymore. And yeah, very, very, very dark place. I remember just used to black out all the time. I used to just I'd be driving along and I'd, my husband Joe would be like, where are we going? And I would have no recollection of just driving to a place that I, I didn't even remember doing it. I was just so just out of it for months. And I'm sure mum will probably remember that time better than I do. Probably just how bad it really was. It was, it was, it was pretty awful to sort of sit back and watch because I, I just remember in the first couple of weeks after Grace's funeral and just seeing this pain on Hannah's face that you just knew that it was something that I couldn't help her with, that she needed bigger help than I could help with or, or any of us. All we could do was just be there and support her and just be present for her. But just trying to get counselling for her or um, just getting her some sort of um, immediate therapy, it was just almost next to impossible. And I'd contacted um, services through my work and other places to try and sort of see. But the waiting lists were just so long. You'd be going months and months and months. And at this point, and I'm brutally honest here, I, I don't think if Hannah had the intervention and, you know, sort of the help, say, from, from Tommy's, I don't think we'd be, the three of us would be sat here today. I honestly don't think that the dark place she went to, I was frightened for her mental health and her sanity and whether or not she would end up taking her own life and that is you know something that frightened me and even you know sort of for Joe as well I think for Joe it was okay but he was able to get some sort of help from work um, for a little bit of counselling but even for his grief and his grieving and how that was pulling these two this couple was pulling them apart and just seeing them just fall and crash it was you know I don't know what to do we were on two completely different paths at that at that yeah. time we were just one of us wanted to talk about her and the other one didn't vice versa I was sitting in the car to cry because I couldn't cry in front of him it was I think I think I remember coming home for maybe two or three weeks because I just couldn't be around him he couldn't be around me and it was it was just pure just pain it was just we can't deal with this. We've got enough going on that I just we just can't be around each other. And obviously now we're fine, but um, yeah, really, yeah. really tough. It takes a, a long time, and I I remember. I mean, I was also in a pretty dark place. Maybe not not quite as dark, but I, um, like I think my husband was pretty worried about me, and I, and I would also I would wait until he'd come to work, and then I would cry and like just have days where I did nothing because I just couldn't get. I I had one day when he rang me I think he because he was worried he'd ring from work and I'm like I can't get off the same like I was on the floor I was like I can't get off the floor and he ended up coming home from work and just like sitting with me for the rest of the day and I mean I I did manage to get some talking therapy I think because I I 
phoned them up and basically cried down the phone at them for like 20 minutes. And they were like, what's happened? And I basically spilled my guts and they were like, okay, maybe you need some support. And I think they were just like terrified or what, you know, or what they were faced with. But and it, it wasn't great, but eventually we worked through it. Um, and it's such, I mean, it, like it's just such a devastating thing to happen. And particularly with all, you know, the, the poor care you'd received and there are so many feelings that grief stirs up guilt i know mean, i know i felt a lot of guilt anger shame and that and that's really hard i think to to kind of work through at the best of times and rachel for you i'm guessing you're you you were dealing not only with the grief of having lost your grandchild and your granddaughter but also the grief of having to watch hannah go through this watch your daughter go through this and I think that must be quite um a unique a unique type of grief I guess and feeling quite helpless in terms of what you could do yeah I think it was something that normally I'm sort of quite outgoing and you know love talking to people and uh and it just kind of I just wanted to shut myself off from everybody because all I wanted to do was just concentrate on keeping Hannah and Joe in my little bubble and just making sure they were safe and just constantly being in contact with Hannah. And I just remember these countless WhatsApps, three, four in the morning of me and Hannah just talking and talking and she's pouring her heart out on, on a WhatsApp and I'm an hour and a half away and I was trying as as often as I could to go to work, go straight to Coventry, come back to Cambridge, go back and forth. Just whatever I could do, I just wanted to not kind of bother with anybody outside my little bubble and just protect these two because you know it the effect it was also having on the two girls you know we've got a, a 15 year old and, a, and an eight year old and trying to also kind of protect them from you know they, they were grieving but it was trying to protect them a little bit as well because you know the knock-on effect that, and how they were grieving and suffering but just trying to I was fearful is what it was. I was I was scared for Hannah, um, you know, in that I'll just get a text message or something and it would be a, a final goodbye or something like that. That's that's how worried I was. And you mentioned that getting help from Tommy's was a bit of a, a I guess a turning point. So how how did you go about getting referred for that or getting that help and and can you talk us through a bit what that involved? So I am extremely lucky that my local hospital in Coventry, um, it's called the Biomedical Research Unit, which is funded by Tommy's, I think. I don't know the exact ins and outs of it, but basically they run a series of trials and different things that is kind of funded by Tommy's um, and headed by someone called Professor Quimby. I don't know if you've heard of her before. So I just so happened to get my bloods done by someone there and they then just became this second family to me because they are just so good at what they do they are so understanding and they just know what to say to make everything better so when I had my three-month review with Professor Quemby was when she told me okay so you've got an incompetent cervix going forward if you get pregnant again you're going to need to have a cervical stitch so that's then how I became involved with with Tommy's they kind of they checked up on me every couple of weeks or so in between 
losing Grace and having um, and becoming pregnant with Jude. And then when I did become pregnant with Jude, I then entered one of their trials called the C-Stitch trial. And all of my care then was Tommy slash biomedical research led rather than midwife led. I was kind of under that umbrella of just kind of under Tommy's, I suppose, like it was all funded by them, everything that was happening. Um, so really, really very lucky that actually, I think there's only two or three in the country, I think, that these these research units that are funded by Tommy's and it just so happens that one's on the doorstep. So very, very lucky. It's kind of ironic that this hospital where you, you re- receive the most atrocious care, also, you also receive the best, you know, platinum care possible. Yeah, so I remember I had a debrief with uh, Professor Quemby, and although I probably shouldn't be divulging this information, she did say to me, you should have been seen by a consultant and at no point throughout your care did you. You were only seen by junior doctors. You should have been seen by a consultant. And if you had been seen by a consultant, this might not have happened. So I think had she been aware of me, uh, it might not have been so horrific. She is uh, just incredible. I mean, I think she was on the TV tonight. She's amazing. Yeah, she's just next level. She's just, she's nuts, but just so incredible at what she does. And I just thank my lucky stars all the time that she was able to take me under her wing and just get me to where I am today. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't be with dude right now if it wasn't for her. So just incredible and so, so lucky that that was on my doorstep. Yeah. And I I haven't, I have heard of her. Um, I haven't met her, but we did go to Manchester and we met with Professor Hazel, um, who runs the Rainbow Clinic there before we got pregnant with my, uh, with my son. And I think I had a similar feeling from him, just that kind of reassurance of someone who a just gets it and kind of understands you know what what you're going through and kind of a bit like a comfort blanket almost of like oh someone's gonna look after me or you know they're gonna tell me what's what's happening or what's going to happen and and what we can actually do um and that feeling that they you know they really know what they're talking about rather than you know sometimes you don't always get that feeling from other doctors i idolize her whenever i see her it's like meeting a celebrity like i just (laughs) i just think she's so incredible and that is so kind of she's like she's world renowned so kind of to be under her care sort of feels like i'm being treated by a celebrity um so i totally know what you mean about it you kind of just in awe of them and just sort of like yeah just thank just she's incredible and just i remember meeting her uh coming to your checkups with Professor Quimby and just almost wanting to just bow down and and just thank you and I just and and the thing is is she's so humble and just so obviously to everybody else she's just this magnificent woman that we you know we're just bigging her up she's just amazing but she's so humble and she doesn't she doesn't get how like special she is she's just she's oblivious to it all and she's just nuts and she's so eccentric she's fantastic we love her (laughs) but just makes you feel so calm around her she's yeah she's great i'm really really lucky oh she sounds like such a character right well we'll come on to talk about jude then and rachel how did you feel when hannah told you she was pregnant Um, again as soon as they announced that they were expecting and i can't really remember the details of that sort of how it how we were sat in the living room and i said guess what and you said you better not be pregnant i said yes i am (laughs) yeah because I think the first time round when you t- announced you were having Grace, it was in the kitchen, and then we told the, the the girls, Hannah's sisters, whilst we were camping. And I just remember Madeline 
crying her eyes out for the whole day, excited about it. And then, so when Hannah sort of and Joe sort of told us they were expecting Jude, and it was just, you know, excited and fearful, but on a very strange level, flipped over knowing that this team were then on board and it was just like having a support car with you, sort of following you everywhere you go and making sure that she was going to be okay and the slightest twinge, the slightest anything that they were there. It was like having a team of guardian angels around it was. Hannah. And, um, and it still is. And I think from having also Steph, who was the bereavement midwife, on board with Hannah, who she won the Daisy Award last year. And she's another absolutely incredible woman. I've adopted her. <laughs> and um, and just knowing that whilst I couldn't be with Hannah and Joe, you know, to support them that often, that suddenly these team of angels, and, and, you know, I know people think, oh, you know, angels are, you know, sort of it's a bit cheesy, whatever. But this, this team just being there, um, it was... A big relief and uh and they're still a very big part of my life now yeah yeah and for you Hannah I mean pregnancy after loss is a huge roller coaster you know whatever whatever your situation is and I think you had despite you you know you had the stitch and everything but then you did have problems again with your cervix around 20 weeks so around the same time you lost grace things started kind of going wrong and that must really have felt like history was repeating itself if I'm being completely honest I think I was really naive and I don't know if it was naivety or whether it was me protecting myself but this with the pregnancy with Jude I just didn't I just didn't I just didn't allow myself to feel anxious in any way shape or form the only time I ever did get really edgy was when I did become 21 weeks and five days. I thought, I just want to get past this one day. And then at 24 weeks, again, it was, okay, just want to get to viability. But other than that, despite me kind of being in a bed with my legs in the air for goodness knows how long, I still kind of didn't really allow it to affect me. And I think that was probably part of the grief that I hadn't processed that yet and I hadn't allowed myself to process and grieve that all came out later on but yeah I kind of breezed through it (laughs) do you think do you think part of that was because you you just didn't really think that you'd be bringing him home or was it because you had so much trust in your team Uh, yeah I think so I think that might be I think that probably would be a fair description that I just couldn't imagine having a baby at home yeah I think that's probably probably a fair description but I think it probably is a bit of naivety that I just didn't allow myself to think of the what ifs. I just sort of just got up each day and just kind of just tried not to think about it and handled it quite well. And then it it all kind of bubbled out of me when Jude was about four months old. But throughout the pregnancy, it actually was, wasn't too bad. So could you tell us what, what happened um, when your cervix started opening again? Yeah, so I had the stitch with Jude at 14 weeks and kind of took it easy between 14 weeks and then I saw Professor Quemby at 16 weeks and she did like internal scans of a cervix check Um, and up until 20 weeks it was strong 
and it was good it was long uh, and then suddenly I had a very very tiny amount of funneling so it just started to open ever so slightly from the inside so she said right that's it now you need to go home and you need to stay in bed and not get out of bed so just kept going back for a couple of weeks same sort of thing still funneling but you know you're doing okay nothing too major is going on and then 23 weeks she checked me same sort of thing nothing had really changed but she said to me um i'm not doing the clinic next week so it'll be two weeks until you see me and then that's when i was like something's gonna go wrong here something's gonna happen in those two weeks when she's not here to fix it and sure enough i went back at 25 weeks and i'd funneled completely to the stitch so my service was completely open the only thing keeping jude in was the stitch so at that point i got admitted to hospital and i was put on um complete and utter bed rest so i was kind of legs in the air with my bed on a tilt um for for two weeks i think um must have been wow. two weeks ish it was horrific <laughs> wow that must have been it incredibly uncomfortable and boring and yeah it was and you know just like going yeah. to the toilet upside yeah. down and eating your dinner upside well, down and I, we don't need to go into details but i just yeah <laughs> i don't know how physically brushing my oh teeth my you know with uh, washing my hair it was oh. all everything was done upside down were they did they kind of have a, a a date they were trying to get you to or was it just a case of every day let's just keep going so, yeah so I had Jude on the Sunday and Professor Quimby came to see me on the Friday. Um, so I would have been 20, 27 weeks at that point. And um, she said to me, we're going to get you to 28 weeks. And if you get to 28 weeks, I'm going to let you go home. She said, but we're not going to get greedy. You're not going full term. It's not happening. So we'll get you to 28 weeks. And anything after that, we'll just take it. Um, and I didn't get to that point, obviously. But um mm. Yeah, 28 weeks was was the marker for us. So we got pretty close. She was pretty happy with that. Yeah. But te technically, it meant that my stitch had failed. So that was a lot of paperwork for them. <laughs> but um, yeah, so 28 weeks is kind of the bare minimum we want. And that's when things kind of start to turn for a, for a premature baby. Yeah, and I remember because we had, with my rainbow, we had um, some issues crop up around the sort of 25-week mark. Um, and they were sort of concerned about the placenta and stuff. And I remember kind of going home and looking up the kind of probability of premature babies surviving mm -hmm. and stuff at all these different weeks. And, and they were literally like, okay, the first, the first we're trying to get to is 28 weeks. Then we try and get to 32 weeks. Then we try and... And they had these kind of staging markers as it were mm -hmm. and you know 20 so 27 plus 2 when when Jude arrived and you know the 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 odds do go up a lot with every sort of day over like 26 mm -hmm. weeks but there's still no guarantee and there's obviously a higher likelihood that they could have other health issues what happened when he was born did he get whisked off straight to NICU um do you remember so, do you even remember <laughs> part partly yeah i mean p partly i yeah, mean i remember i was there so i remember them saying to me you're not allowed to push and i was like no i my body's not even i'm not even doing this my body's doing it and they're like oh yeah now you can push and he f i think i think it's fair to say he flew out like a cannon so i remember he got put on he was laid on my chest he cried and then he did a little wee on me didn't he and then he held onto my finger and then my sister pulled the emergency button and the neonatal crash team came running in. Um, and I all I remember 
was them talking about what gin they were going to have when they finished that night shift. Do you remember? And I was there like, is my baby alive? And they were just having a casual conversation, like it's something they do every day, which of course it is. They were so calm about it, weren't they? Sort of trying to pump this little oxygen thing to keep him breathing. And they're just, you know, just so casual. Yeah. Yeah. So then they did, maybe 10 minutes later, um, they whisked him away. And I didn't see him until gone midnight. And obviously he was all hooked up to every machine known to man at that point. So didn't see much of his little face. But um, yeah, it all happened very quickly. Because I think we, we'd been, I'd been out on a, on a club ride in that morning and then got the phone call from Joe to say, Hannah's in labour. I'm like, uh, okay. And then it was just like ringing Matt saying, right, we need to go to the hospital. Then Lou, um, my stepdaughter, was like, oh, well, we're coming too. And it was almost like, something out of um, a Hugh Grant movie, you know, there's just all these cars heading off to Coventry Hospital and then Lou and myself sort of turned up at, at the hospital and, and into the ward and there. But um, the staff there are just incredible, you know, sort of how they keep this calm. Polar opposite experience to what I had previously. It was it was a well-oiled yeah. ship. It was just amazing. It, yeah, really but Also, good. if we just go back to that point when you were bed in the bed at the hospital at 25 weeks on the ward and you sort of tilted up I think that was around about the time then that there was a serious case review for Grace and the legislation had then changed on that ward that you'd gone to that any pregnant woman would no longer go to this women's gynecological ward that would actually go off to the labour ward is that is that correct yeah so uh, it was 22 weeks and over you went to labour ward so I missed the cutoff by two days. So I had to deliver on a gynaecology ward. Uh, and then after, and they clearly weren't equipped for it. So after I had Grace and it was so poorly dealt with, they moved it to, I want to say, 16 weeks. So now anyone over 16 weeks then goes to the labour ward instead. So she does have a little legacy, bless her. So that's good. Yeah, I yeah, I think I think that was standard or certainly standard when, you know, when, when I've been through it. Um, and, you know, an awful thing to go through, but... I'm glad that they did actually take some of that on board and they did make those changes and, you know, other mm. families will have yeah. benefited from that. Yeah. Yeah, really Because I always remember you laying in that bed and just hearing a family come through and the nurse saying, oh, what? how far gone are you? And I think it was, say, like 16, 17 weeks and we just looked at each other and it was just like, you know, like, thank you because, you know, had any had this situation not occurred with Grace that maybe she would have had a similar experience or, or not, but, mm. you know. And how did Jude's recovery go? So in terms of his sort of neonatal journey, I would say almost textbook. I mean, he was ventilated for 11 hours and then by the time he came home, I think he was in for 53 days, so eight weeks. By the time he came home, he was completely self-ventilated off oxygen. He was tiny, but he was sort of, you know, he was fully fed. He was didn't have his tube or anything. Um, so really kind of smashed it. Could have gone a lot worse. However, <laughs> um, four days after he came home, he we thought he had a seizure. So we went into hospital for the night. And while we were there, a nurse fed him, well, forced me to feed him milk that he wasn't ready for. And I told her he wasn't ready for he choked and he had a cardiac arrest. Yeah, so I had to experience watching him get CPR. He basically was lifeless in my arms, bless him. But 
thank goodness because we were having lots of feeding issues when we got home so we sort of knew something like this was going to happen but it just so happened that we were in the hospital at the time so that was really good so then we had maybe four three four months of in and out of hospital every other week with various issues with his feeding Uh, and then he came home with a feeding tube which sort of changed the game for us i'm sure lots of people that listen to this sort of podcast will probably have some sort of experience with that in terms of feeding tubes and medical dramas at home but um yeah a touch wood he is now perfectly healthy so did that I, I can't even imagine what it was like to go through that after you've been through everything with grace to then have that moment with him mm. did that did that i guess a I mean, that's just so traumatic. I mean, you know, PTSD or, you know, all your grief, did that all come rushing back to you? Yeah, it did. And um, that was then the trigger then for the big mental breakdown I then had. I'm sure mum will remember that also. Um, I then had quite severe kind of, I'd say delayed postpartum depression it was probably like four months after he was born i think it still counts it still counts as postnatal depression yeah yeah it's it's up to a year isn't it but it was sort of for me it was sort of delayed i did i at the time i didn't know that's what it was because it had been so long since i would had it um and still to this day i mean he's been ill the last week with just fevers and things like that and i feel like i just can't handle it because in my head the only experience i've ever had is well they're either going to die or they're going to end up on some sort of life support. So, um, yeah, that's tough. Um, and I think that my response to him being ill isn't particularly normal, but he's, yeah, he's perfectly fine. But it, tough, definitely very tough because, again, it was caused by a member of staff who who shouldn't have did what she did. Uh, so in my mind, I kind of lost all faith in medical staff and sort of felt like why are all of these people trying to kill my children if that makes sense because grace could have been prevented but they chose not to jude could have died and essentially when he choked i gave him to her and said look he's not breathing she was like oh no no he's fine he's fine she was cuddling him and steph the brute midwife was like "Mm, i'm not sure he looks a bit of a funky color so she ran off to get someone and still the nurse was saying, no, no, he's fine, he's fine, he's fine. So I went and called a consultant and said, look, I think my baby's not breathing. She came in and he was completely lifeless. But the nurse was still holding him, cuddling him. So this was maybe a minute later. She still hadn't noticed that he was basically dead. He had no heartbeat, oh no breathing rate or anything like that. And she and she was still um, still holding him, cuddling, like, cuddling him like a little baby. So that was that was tough. And then I had to see her kind of every week that we were in there she was still there and I just wanted to just oh I just don't think I could have done that I couldn't have spoken to her ever again no I just just wanted to just slide tackle her but that followed on a second that was a a second serious case review that we'd had within 18 months wasn't it and yeah we've got a good track record yeah you're probably on the hospital's blacklist (laughs) probably And Rachel, just to rewind a bit. So obviously with Jude being so tiny and in NICU, um, I'm guessing, Hannah, you were able to sort of hold him and they they sort of prioritise you being able to hold him as soon as possible. But you might have had to wait a bit longer, Rachel. How how did it feel to to hold him for the first time? Oh, from the minute I saw him, I was just itching to get my hands on him and just love him and cuddle him and just, just cover him in kisses. So I'd go over to the NICU and 
you know, sort of spend a couple of hours over there and just sort of peer in. And I was just desperate to touch him and, and whatnot. And then I think the first time I got to touch him and actually hold him was when he was then in Skaboo, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, so he was yeah. in Skaboo and managed to sort of hold him. And it was just just this tiny little baby. And he had been born with so much dark hair. He just like just touching his... And I just remember just looking at him and just... It was just lovely, and I just wanted to kiss him, and, and Hannah's like, don't. And I was just like, just give him a quick, you know, just kiss the back of his head. But I remember that day so clearly because they just told me that day, oh, you do realise that when he's in Skaboo, grandparents could hold him. So I rang mum. Did you know that, that you can hold him in Skaboo? And she was like, right, I'm on my way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hour and a half later, there she was holding him. Yeah, you had to wait quite a while. Yeah, and I absolutely completely and utterly adore and love this little boy he's just a pure joy sometimes i just love him so much no always (laughs) i'm his fossil he'll be able to get away with all sorts (laughs) yeah it's always yeah but it was just the most amazing incredible feeling Uh, still worried because obviously he was there's a a picture of him with a card today I, i today i'm breathing on my own and that was the first time I held him with this little card saying, you know, sort of today I breathed on my own or, or whatever the card said. Mm. Yeah, I think that that was that sort of a moment that is just sort of it's sewn in to my heart there and, and in my memory. I'll never forget that moment. And Rachel, so I think we've obviously talked a bit about Grace's legacy in terms of changing the hospital procedures, which I think is is fantastic and an amazing legacy for her to have left. But I think... You know, you're a bit of an athlete and you've done quite a bit of sort of fundraising for Tommy's in Grace's memory. So could you tell us a bit about what you've done and what your latest challenge is? So uh, I've run three London marathons in the past. So I've done three, sorry. Two of them were for meningitis. Um, It was something that affected my own family. But since Tommy's have come on board, the actual impact that they've had on my family directly and also ringing me up to see am I okay oh that's amazing and because I couldn't always be there for Hannah so I would get phone calls from them and I just thought you know I've never had that from a charity especially as an extended member of the family as such you know as a a grandparent so I was able to get into the ballot for London in 2019 but decided I'd run for Tommy's so I started to fundraise for for them um, and just the support that I had, I could not have wished for more support from them because they were just incredible. And then last year, Carl, who's one of the primary ambassadors with me uh, for this cycling brand, had said that he was going to be doing this West Highland or West, West Highland Way, West Highland Way, and sort of talking about it generally and why he wanted to do it. And then knowing his story, you know, his background, bringing more friends and team members on board into this little group and for Tommy's that I thought I'd, I'd, I want to get involved and I want to help so it's going to be like a 22 mile run um, a three mile swim an 80 88 mile ride and then the hike up Ben Nevis the next day and if I'm honest sort of I don't think I could ever think of sponsoring or, or wanting to do anything and dedicating pain and and muscle aches and blisters or anything for any any other charity really other than Tommy's because let's say that impact that they've had has directly helped Hannah and it's directly sort of um, impacted me as well and 
and obviously for any other family to go through what we've all had to go through and then having Tommy's on board so so yeah so it's just been um, running the London Marathon which was the last one they did in 2019 and then of course sort of um, doing this West Highland Way um, and I'm just so happy that Carl has agreed you know come on board you know and do this I don't know if I'll be saying I'm so happy about it sort of halfway through, you know, sort of the actual day. But I'm sat here grimacing at the thought of it. it sounds horrific. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, as well, podcast listeners probably know that my husband's also signed up to the challenge or he blames me because I kind of signed him up when I was chatting to Carl one day. <laughs> so he didn't get any choice in the matter. <laughs> um, yeah, but we're looking forward to I know, that. Yes. And it'll be really exciting to meet you as yeah. well. So we'll be, I'll be there supporting in the support role. Yeah, I'll watch from the sidelines. You won't catch me up any mountains. <laughs> Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we are unfortunately out of time, but thank you both so much for coming on. And Rachel, would you like to tell people where they can learn more about the West Highland Way Challenge? Yes, so if they go on to Instagram and they can follow uh, the Run, Swim, Bike, Hike um, Instagram page, um, there's also the Ambitious Endurance, uh, which is Carl, and uh, he shares a lot on there. Or there's my Instagram, which is Cycling Thighs. Um, and they can find out more information there and about how to watch the progress, see what we're doing and about any donations for Tommy's and, uh, and any of the progress that Tommy's are making with their new campaign on miscarriage as well. Yeah, and I have to say, you know, we've had support from Tommy's and they are an amazing charity. And I know so many people who have had such amazing support from them, uh, you know, with various different experiences. So it's a very worthy cause as anyone listening to this podcast, although. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>